0: John chapter eight, verses 21 to 59. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the, the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, Then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you are Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell the truth, you do not believe in me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so do the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? He saw it and he was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds.
1: Hello, Mary Creek. It is good to get the chance to speak to you today. Uh, Today, we are back in John chapter 8. The last time we were here was in February, I think. If you were listening to the reading, you may have noticed that this passage is long and dense, so unless we're going to be here for two hours, we wouldn't be able to get through it all in the depth that we might like. But I'm sure God has something to say to us today, so let's get started. I don't know how you feel about public arguments. When I see them on the street, I get nervous, but when I see them on the internet, I get very curious. I am that gif of Michael Jackson eating the popcorn. I can spend hours in the comments. Sometimes I come away feeling gross like I've seen the worst of humanity on display, but sometimes I feel like I've read an informative discussion from people who disagree but have smart things to say. Sometimes, it's a mixture of both. Today, we get to look at a very public argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. And I think it's one of those ones where we see both sides of humanity. Specifically, we see Jesus coming out looking great, and the Pharisees come out looking closed-minded and violent. We see Jesus arguing with the Pharisees about who he is and who they are. It's like an identity slugfest. And while the Pharisees are determined to prove that Jesus is definitely not who he says he is, in the process, he makes it clear that they are not who they think they are. While you might be tempted to become Michael Jackson with the popcorn, it might turn out that this argument has something to say to you too. This argument began in verses 12 to 20 when Jesus made some bold claims about himself, but the Pharisees were having none of it. He opens our reading by saying, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. He's talking about his death, resurrection and ascension. The Jewish leaders who were so excited about their prophesied Messiah, their foretold king, they're going to be looking around for the Messiah without realizing that he's come and gone and they've missed him. He was standing in front of them, talking to them. But they refuse to accept Jesus' claims about himself, and so they will die in their sins, unable to receive the salvation that Jesus offers. They don't understand what Jesus is saying, and like all people making bad faith arguments, they immediately jump to the worst conclusion. Jesus is gonna kill himself. And while we now view suicide as a tragic outcome from mental illness, in Jesus' day, they saw suicide as one of the worst sins a person could commit. Their assumption that Jesus could not and cannot be who he says he is means that this argument was never going to end well. Why? Because as Jesus says, he is from above and they are from below. Unless the Pharisees had their spiritual eyes opened, they were never going to understand who Jesus is. And as a consequence, they were never going to understand who they were. How would they actually recognize Jesus? Jesus says it will be when they lift him up. Then they will see that Jesus was who he said and did the will of God the Father. Now, when I hear this, I think it must mean when Jesus is worshipped and when people honor him. Like if the Pharisees were to come to a church service and everyone was singing, Be high and lifted up be high and lifted up. The Pharisees would hear this and they'd join in. They'd be like, be high and lifted up. And they'd be like, Jesus really is the Messiah. He's the one we need to put our trust in. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. In the book of John, when Jesus talks about being lifted up, he is talking about being lifted up on the cross. The glory of the Messiah will not be seen in his seeming triumph, but in his worst possible moment, the time when he is being executed like a criminal. But in the process, he is dying for the sins of the world. Only after the religious leaders have killed Jesus would they recognize him for who he is, and that is exactly what we see happen. In Acts 2, as Peter preaches to thousands at Pentecost, he says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. As he says this, we're told that the listeners are cut to the heart and many people repent and put their faith in Jesus. What a terrible thing to discover that you have killed your own Messiah. In our passage, after Jesus talks about being lifted up, we're told that a bunch of people believed him. Now this might be a nice end to the story but it's not like they all suddenly became Christians. One, because Jesus has just told us that that's not how it's going to happen. And two, you remember from the end of the reading, they end up trying to stone Jesus to death, so this is going to be a rather short-lived belief. So how does Jesus ruin it? He says this: "If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth." will set you free. Now, this is a famous saying of Jesus. We like the idea that truth sets free. Like if I know the truth about whether the world is flat or 5G causes coronavirus or the royal family are lizard people, I will be set free. And to some degree, that's true. There is freedom in knowing what is real and unreal in the world, but that's not what Jesus is saying. This is not the verse for absurd conspiracy theories. The freedom comes from believing Jesus is who he says he is. Knowing the truth of who Jesus is sets you free. If you can accept Jesus as God, who came to live, die and rise again and now rules in heaven, that is truth that will set you free from the lies that keep you in sin and death. How did the Pharisees respond when Jesus said this? Those people who believed a minute ago are now offended. His implication that they were slaves is too much for them. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Their ancestral pride has been offended. It was absurd for them to think that descendants of Abraham could be slaves, except it wasn't. Of course they have been slaves. They have a festival they celebrate every year to remember when they were rescued from literal slavery. Not to mention the subsequent slavery and subjugation of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, Persians and Greeks and the fact that they are saying this right in the middle of Israel, which at that very time was occupied by the Romans. Now we're getting to the crux of the passage. The identity of Jesus is offending their self belief, even if it is blatantly wrong. Jesus wasn't talking about physical slavery, but if they refused to even recognize their physical slavery, there was no way they would recognize their spiritual slavery. These people refuse to accept Jesus' words about himself, refuse to obey him, and will never be set free from their slavery to sin and death. The question is, how will we respond to Jesus? Will we allow who he is to inform how we understand who we are? Or will we let our view of ourselves define who we think Jesus is? As we move on in the passage, we see that this is where the discussion starts to get pretty messy. The Pharisees keep insisting that they have good parentage. Abraham is our father, they say. Jesus responds by saying, Well, if Abraham was truly their father, then they wouldn't be trying to kill him. God is their father, they insist. If God were their father, then they would recognize Jesus is God. No, Jesus says their father is Satan. How can Jesus call them that? Isn't Jesus meant to be nice and polite? No, Jesus is truthful. And if you refuse to believe the truth and insist on holding on to lies, telling lies about others, and believing lies to the point of trying to kill the Son of God, it is pretty clear who you're finding your life and identity in. It is not God, but his enemy. Being called children of Satan gets them, understandably, very angry. If someone told me I was a descendant of the devil, even if it were true, I would be pretty offended. But... They have no good comeback to Jesus' claims about their ancestry. You know Jesus is winning the argument because they just resort to name-calling. Aren't we right in saying you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Crooked Jesus! More corrupt than anyone! The most terrible, horrible of all messiahs! I've never seen a worse messiah! To call someone a Samaritan was a big insult. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They saw them as racially impure people who had polluted the true Jewish faith. If the Jewish leaders were proud of their heritage, then calling Jesus a Samaritan and possessed by a demon was the worst kind of insult. But however good a zinger they thought it was, it also added zero substance to the discussion. Jesus responds by ignoring their racially charged insult and insists that he isn't demon-possessed, but in fact doing God's will. And anyone who does his will, then, will not die. And he's not talking about physical death, but being saved from the eternal death of God's judgment. His opponents think that this is absurd. If Abraham and all the prophets died, then how can Jesus claim that people who obey him will live? Are you greater than our father Abraham, they ask? Well, yes, that's exactly what he's claiming. He's claiming to be glorified by God. And what's more, speaking of Abraham, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. This is too much for the religious leaders. You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? This seems like a weird thing to say to me. Like, why did they choose 50? If Jesus was in his 30s, then why 50? It's like they're saying, If you were 55, Or even 52, we might think that you had met Abraham. But you, you're too young. Like, why didn't they say you have to be 2,000 years old to have seen Abraham? Like, that would make chronological sense. But for some reason, 50 is the age they choose. How did Jesus respond? Oh, you're right. Silly me. I'm only 32. What was I thinking? No, Jesus makes one of the most amazing claims about himself in all of Scripture. Very truly, I tell you, Before Abraham was, I am. If anyone ever tries to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, that it was a later invention of the church, remember this passage. Jesus is very clearly claiming divine status. Remember when Moses was standing before the burning bush talking to God? As God was sending him to Pharaoh and the Israelites to win his people freedom, Moses asked who he should say sent him. And God replied with this. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am is God's name for himself. And now Jesus is claiming that name as his own. He's saying he is eternal. Even before Abraham existed, Jesus was because he is I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, if you're not totally sure if that's what Jesus was claiming, then have a look at how the listeners respond. They pick up rocks to stone him to death. If Jesus wasn't claiming something as seemingly blasphemous as being Yahweh, then they probably wouldn't have tried to kill him. It's clear that those arguing with Jesus knew exactly what he was claiming. And finally, I think it's worth pointing out Jesus' response to the attempted stoning. He just hid himself and slipped away. If he had a crowd of people focused on him, hiding himself would be pretty difficult. Jesus has some next-level ninja and Batman skills here. Or maybe he had the ability to turn invisible. Whatever is going on, I think Jesus' hiding skills are some of his least remarked on and most understated miraculous abilities. So what are we to do with a passage like this? I guess we can sit around and think, weren't those religious leaders dumb that they didn't recognize Jesus for who he was? But that's probably not all that helpful. What would be more helpful would be to think about where we might fit in this passage. It's probably pretty easy to assume that we would recognize Jesus if he would turn up today, but that might not necessarily be the case. I have a few podcasts that I love to listen to. Podcasts, that I listen to without fail. Coronacast with Tegan Taylor and Norman Swan is one of my favorites. Emily and I listen to it every morning. Stay tuned with Preet Bharara is uh, one also that I listen to every week. But my favorite is probably Reply All with PJ Vote and Alex Goldman. It's funny, it tells good stories, they do great reporting. And having listened to it for years, I feel like PJ and Alex are like good friends of mine. When I was listening recently, I thought to myself, I wonder what they look like? Like, I vaguely remembered seeing a photo of them years ago, but I kind of forgotten what they looked like. It was all kind of blurry in my head, and I then had these ideas of what they might look like, and this is what I thought it was. Now, I know that that is Dev Patel and Eli Roth. That's kind of who I imagine hosting my favorite podcast every time I listened. Then... This week I thought to myself, I remember I was standing in the kitchen and I was like I really should figure out what they look like. So I jumped on YouTube and I searched for Reply All and I found an interview with the two of them. And it turns out they don't look like Dev and Eli, they look like this. Even as I watched the interview and the voices that I know and enjoy so much were coming out of the faces of these two men, I didn't recognise them. I was thinking, this is all wrong. These are not the people from my podcast. These are imposters who just sound like them. I had my idea of what PJ and Alex were meant to look like because of what I had heard and what I had imagined so that when I actually saw them, I didn't recognize them. Sometimes I think with Jesus, we can have the wrong picture of him in our minds. We have an idea about what we think he is like so that we don't take the time to figure out what he is actually like. And when we actually encounter him, Would we even recognize him? This passage is about the identity of Jesus and Jesus challenging the identity of his opponents. The Jewish leaders had difficulty recognizing Jesus' true identity because they were so sure of their ethnic identity that they couldn't recognize anyone who challenged how they saw themselves. When Jesus challenges us and what we hold dear, do we have the humility to accept Jesus for who he is rather than hold on to the Jesus that we want him to be, the Jesus that we think that we need him to be. Now, from what I know from Mary Creek people, I assume that most of us aren't like the Pharisees and caught up in our ethnic identity. For those of us who are white, like me, it'd be pretty unpleasant if we spent any time being proud of our whiteness, even if it was with the best possible motives. But I think we might be much more likely to find our identity in our ideologies. We don't so much align ourselves with those people with the same ancestral heritage as us, but we align ourselves with those people who have the same values and worldview as us. The thing we might be most proud of could be our social justice credentials or our political beliefs or our theological convictions. We know our tribe, we love our tribe, and we wonder how anyone can actually not think the same way as us. I'll give you a not so controversial example from my life. I'm a man who loves the comforts of home. So in general, the last few months of lockdown, they haven't been too hard. Like they haven't been totally easy, but it's involved plenty of time on the couch with Uber Eats and Netflix. And if I was to describe my ideal weekend, all of those things would feature And you know how we're meant to follow people on social media who aren't like us so we can have influences outside our ideological bubble? Well, I have a bunch of friends who love camping and four-wheel driving, which is the exact opposite of anything that seems like fun to me. They post photos of them driving through mud and drinking beer and getting cars bogged and camping in the middle of the bush and then driving through sand dunes with five land cruisers. Some of my best friends like this stuff. I tried to plan a church with a guy like this, and he's great, but for the life of me, I can't understand why anyone thinks this kind of thing would be fun. I look at their photos and I think, you know what's easier than getting bogged and breaking your rear axle, I assume you could do that, and cooking your dinner in the dark on a dodgy gas stove, staying home, dry and clean, and watching movies about somebody else's adventures. I don't understand that life at all. And I find that I have the same feeling for all sorts of people that I see online. People who are politically different or theologically different, or who are passionate about things that I totally disagree with. And I think I cannot comprehend how we can both live in the same world and come to vastly different conclusions about what is right and wrong. I suspect you've felt the same way yourself. Now we might be happy to live like this, but you might be wondering, How this might stop us from recognising Jesus. Surely we can be the kind of people who have our own set of values, beliefs and things we are passionate about and still know Jesus. Well, sort of. Yes. Of course we can and should have our own worldview and values. We have no other option but to form some kinds of opinions about the world that we live in. But here's the thing. I think sometimes we can be so committed to a set of values that we find our identity in that we align Jesus with our values rather than align our values with Jesus. Imagine you met Jesus face to face and he told you that one of the things that you most value and most hold dear is wrong and the people you profoundly disagree with are right. Would you reject your belief or would you reject Jesus? Like if Jesus said to me, if you love me, you'll love four-wheel driving and camping. I would be very confused. But also, I would find it very difficult to embrace that lifestyle. Or, just to make things more uncomfortable, if Jesus said to me, the right thing to do for refugees who are seeking asylum in Australia is to hold them in indefinite detention to deter people smugglers. I would be very very uncomfortable. Now, I'm not saying that's what Jesus believes. I'm pretty sure the Bible gives us clear guidance on loving our neighbors, and I don't think that involves locking up asylum seekers. But my point is this. You are not saved by your hobbies on the weekend or your views on Australia's asylum seeker policies, and neither is anyone else. And I can guarantee you that there are going to be some things that Jesus is going to prefer profoundly disagree with you on. I'm not going to tell you what they are because I don't know. Maybe it's your view of hell and God's judgment or the authority of the Bible or abortion or LGBTQI inclusion in the church or gender equality or sex outside of marriage or climate justice or church planting or the salvation of people of other faiths to name just a few. Please notice that I haven't even stated where I stand on the view of these issues, but I suspect that some of us are hearing this and we're feeling a little bit defensive already. My point is, on these issues and beliefs that we hold most dear, and things that determine how we see ourselves, we need to keep submitting them to Jesus, admitting that we could be wrong, and letting Him show us from His life and His word what the truth is and once we've found what we think is the truth we do it again and again and again we continually bring it back to jesus because we could be wrong and if jesus wants to show us what it truly means to obey his word so that we might not see death then we can't be so aligned to a viewpoint that we fail to recognize the messiah who believes differently to us The Jewish leaders wouldn't accept a Messiah who didn't fit in with their categories of what the Messiah would be like. So when the true Messiah turned up, they rejected him. Why is this important? Because when we hold too fast to a particular viewpoint, we can reject others who don't hold to the same ideology or value system as us. We can find ourselves saying things like, I don't know how you can be a Christian and vote liberal or labor, or greens. Or we find ourselves thinking that people who have the wrong view of things and all those things that I listed before, and many others, they're not truly saved. And at that point, we've made ideology gospel. We've made the tribe that we belong to dictate how saved someone is, more than, or at least as much as, our trust in Jesus as the Messiah who is lifted up on our behalf. And isn't that what the Pharisees did? They elevated their ancestry to the point of saving them rather than trusting in the only one who could save them. So what's the solution? Well, what did the Jewish leaders do wrong? They wouldn't accept Jesus' true identity and they wouldn't allow him to challenge theirs. They were ready to reject and kill him rather than let him upset their worldview. If we can accept and follow Jesus as he is, and allow him to challenge how we see ourselves and how we see for others, then we will know the truth that will set us free. What do we see Jesus telling the Jewish leaders about themselves? Well, he has some pretty tough things to say to them. That They're sinners who will die in their sins. They are bound for death. They are slaves to sin. They are children of Satan. None of this is flattering. And it seems a bit harsh but it's nothing that isn't supported in the rest of the bible the bible is clear all of us because of our allegiance with evil have become slaves to sin and are bound for god's judgment and eternal death but jesus invites us to trust in him the lifted up messiah who by his sacrifice saves us from god's wrath from slavery to sin and adopts us into a new family where God is our Father and Jesus is our brother. The only way that we can receive this is if we are willing to accept our hopeless state and that Jesus is God who has given His life on our behalf. When this forms the basis of our identity as saved followers of the God-man, then we won't allow anything else to usurp Jesus as the most important in our lives. We won't let anyone or anything other than Jesus define what is right and wrong. And the tribe that we most clearly align with is not the people who go to the same protests as us or have the same view on social issues as us or who vote the same way as we do or who decide to stay out of politics just like we are or who do the same things on the weekends as us. But the people who are our tribe are those people who have the same father as us, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we will long for all people to be saved no matter if they are like us or not, no matter how unpleasant we may find them or how unpleasant we find their beliefs because we know that we too were lost in sin and death until Jesus came and rescued us, not because of any inherent goodness in us, but because of his mercy towards us. If Jesus really is God, as he has claimed in this passage, then we have an obligation to let him be the one who defines reality for us. Let's let Jesus define who he is and who we are so that we might not make the same mistake of defining who he is because we insist on defining who we are. I'll say that again because it's a mouthful. Let's let Jesus define who he is and who we are so that we might not make the same mistake of defining who he is because we insist on defining who we are. If we let Jesus show us who he is, we will recognize him when we see him. If you're not a Christian, what this means for you is that Jesus has put a challenge to you today about who he is. Will you accept his claims about himself, that he is God and that only in him can you find life? Will you accept Jesus' claims about you that you are a slave to sin, and that only in Him can you receive eternal life. You get to choose how you respond to Jesus. But I would encourage you, don't make the same mistake as the Pharisees in this passage and reject Jesus because you don't like what He says about you. Instead, embrace Him. Because despite what He says about you, He gave His life so that you may find forgiveness and eternal life in Him. And if you're a Christian, are you prepared to submit all the things you believe about yourself, others, and the world to Jesus? Are you prepared to recognize Him as He is, not as you want Him to be? Are you prepared to let Him show you who you are, not believing you're who you want to be? Will you embrace those who you profoundly disagree with because you know Jesus embraced you? Will you let Jesus be Jesus? Well, that is John chapter 8, verses 21 to 59. We made it through. Thanks, Mary Creek. I will see you sometime in person, hopefully soon.